Hello, you're listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast with me, Susan Romsdorf-Terry, and... Luke Romsdorf-Terry, where we read a book from the Cat Who Mystery series and discuss it. And on today's episode, we're talking about the 27th book in the series, The Cat Who Went Bananas. Bananas. Wow. Bananas! Uh, one second, I did something that I should have done. I'm not. I haven't done something that I should have done beforehand. So, channeling my inner flop house now for any of those who are paying attention. <laughs> Props to you, Stu. Anyway, this book was published when 2004. That was the same as uh, it was the previous book, the cat who talked turkey. Correct. Jeez. Now uh, there is a dedication in this book, right? Well, there's always a dedication in the books. It's always dedicated to Earl Bettinger, the husband who. But starting in this book, uh, starting in the last book, we start to see that expanded dedication. So we have, of course, the one page that has dedicated to Earl Bettinger, the husband who, which is always cute. But then we get the page before that thanks her research assistant, her, uh, her publicist, all of these people that have been working with her over the years. So it's... A nice gesture to uh, to acknowledge that, you know, she hasn't been working in a vacuum. She hasn't been doing all of this herself. It's a uh, it's a major project. No, absolutely. I think what she could have benefited from, as uh, we have seen in other ones, is a continuity editor. <laughs> <laughs> but that's more the, besides the point. It's it's definitely. So I'm going to reference something that I don't normally. Um, but there is a scene in Parks and Rec. Near uh, near the end of, I think, the, um, I want to say, the the fourth season, when Leslie's pregnant. When we find out Leslie's pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yes. And she it turn, she turns out to be having triplets. And the, uh, the, the doctor refers to it as, a, as a, her uterus is going out of business sale. Um, That's right. These last four books, particularly... Feel, uh, talk turkey less so. Um, that still was kind of independent. Um, but these last two books that were meant to be three books because there is a book that was never published. Right, because um, she passed away. Because she passed away and it was decided that um, her various assistants didn't feel that they could finish it to her standards. Hmm. Um, so in respect to her memory, they never fi- they never finished the book. Um, so these last two books... There are going to be a lot of places that feel like they're leading up to something that's never going to pay off. And it's becoming very apparent in this particular in in this book. So it's a little bit of a rough read. So it's everything must go, but there's no place to go to make a resolution. She's she's trying to throw all this information at us, get things, get things out of the way, get ends tied up. Everything, everything must go. (laughs) But where? No one really knows. (laughs) No one really knows. Um, (laughs) I do, however, enjoy the uh, quote that's on the cover of my copy, which is from Kirkus Review that says, fans will go bananas. It's very Gene Shallot. It really is, but that kind of makes it worthwhile. Even Uh, Satan himself would love this angel hair pasta. Exactly. (laughs) You know, this is also one of the first books that I have a new copy. I don't have, it's not a replacement. I never, pretty much from the Cat Who Talked Turkey, uh, the Cat Who Talked Turkey is the last of the old copies that I have. Interesting. Um, so then you actually had to actually purchase a brand new copy then. Yeah, I had to go find the copies of the last three books hmm. because I remember reading them in the library and not being terribly impressed with them and deciding, you know what, I'm not going to buy these. So take that for what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, shall we jump right in? Let's jump right in because now, it's opening night of the theater club's latest opening play. Night. 
It's the importance of being earnest. With all of our favorites in their expected roles, Fran is Gwendolyn, Larry is the butler, Derek is Lady Bracknell, uh, Carol is directing, and Alden Wade, the new arrival we mentioned in the previous book from Lockmaster, who is hired to work in the soon-to-be-opened-new bookstore, is playing the male lead. They don't actually specify what he is at first. I assumed that meant Algernon. Um, and Quill, of course... Could could be Jack. Exactly. That's the thing. I took a guess and figured (laughs) and thought it was Algernon. Well, you had a a 50-50 shot with those. Yes. Um, Now, Quill, of course, will review the play. Um, We have to back this up a little bit. One quick question. Yeah, You you said, who is playing Lady Bracknell? Derek, come and break. Is it always, well, one, good for Buzz, uh, but two, is it always a thing, because I? it seems like it's a recent thing now, this is a bit of a tangent, I know we haven't even started the book, but Lady Bracknell being played in drag by a male, has that always been a thing? Because it's, I know the past couple of revivals on Broadway, uh, Brian Bedford played it, yeah. I want to say, I know there was a production locally here in Denver, well, it wasn't a production, it was a reading, but a male actor played that. I. It, it seems like that's just a new fad. It's not a new fad. It is hmm. definitely, it is definitely something that has come and gone with the popularity of this play. I, I, I don't really have any and i don't have notes to hand about this so i would have to go actually look this up but i know that it has been the custom it is honestly more surprising to see a female playing lady bracknell than it is to see a male Hmm. especially on stage productions interesting um and then of course when you get the wonderful wonderful movie version i really liked it what can i say um with um Colin Firth and Rupert Everett and Reese Witherspoon, Reese Witherspoon right. and Francis. I, I don't remember the Gwendolyn's name. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but I very much remember uh, Dame Judi Dench as Lady Bracknell. I was going to say she, yeah, D- Judi Dench has played at one point and you know, Olivia Coleman's going to play it at some point oh, too. Oh, it's going to be fabulous. And but you know, 20 years, he's going to be prime for that. It feels, this particular role, I'm so sorry for this giant tangent, but this is a, <laughs> This is actually a, a big thing with me. It's one of those roles that I feel like casting the male is the cheap shot for Lady Bracknell. Um, it's more of a gimmick, or it, a it's absolutely a gimmick, and it doesn't. And it it tends to deny the fact that older women are funny as hell, and it's just it's just something that gets completely ignored a lot of the times. And it's like, oh, we're going to cast it as a male. Tee hee. It's like no, let's cast it. Let's cast James Dame Judi Dench in the role and have her slaying the audience with the lift of an eyebrow. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, she's brilliant. Anyway, no, uh, so, sorry for that tangent. Let's lovely <laughs> tangent. Anyway, Derek is playing playing Lady Bracknell, which, to be fair, unless Carol was doing it, there really isn't anyone within our our circle of actors who, who really would be appro- would be appropriate. Normal rep rep players. Yes. Now we're on to paragraph two of the summary, <laughs> but we do have to back up a bit. Um, <laughs> The title of this book uh, and and some of the the gags later on comes from uh, Dr. Diane Landspeak's recommendation that Quill drink less coffee and eat a banana once a day. Hmm. Um, Quill, not a bad recommendation. Not a terrible recommendation. Um, Quill visits her parents, Larry and Carol Landspeak, to discuss program notes ahead of the opening. I was wrong. Alden Wade is playing Jack because he's done the role before when it was presented in Lockmaster. Apparently... They couldn't cast Algernon locally. I don't believe that. Um, <laughs> and so they hired the guy who did the Lockmaster production, for, uh, the same one that Alden Wade did. Now, I'd just like to say, considering how much kerfluffle that caused to cast uh, Queen Catherine in uh, in Henry um, in Henry VIII, 
when they did it in the Catanua Cardinal, I am terribly shocked that they would actually bring in Lockmaster actors to do this. That was um, a big to do when it happened. It, it, I mean, that was huge. Mm-hmm. It was it was a huge fuss um, and, and really kind of insulting to the locals. But this apparently is just blithely. Oh, of course. Well, he's done it before. Let's just get on with it. It's um, riding a bike. You never, you know, they yeah. will come back to you. I guess. Um, also, <laughs> we mentioned before that there is still some issues about uh, how far Lockmaster really is. Um, <laughs> she's now saying it's a 60 mile round trip. Not 120, um, but as we learned in the Cat Who Knew a Cardinal, it was in fact originally meant to be 60 miles from pick from center of pickaxe to center of Lockmaster, because the the villain in the Cat Who Knew a Cardinal would make it in under 60 minutes. Right. If it was only 30 minute drive, he wouldn't back a lot. Well, the whole thing was contingent upon him mm-hmm. being able to make that drive right. in a short in, amount in, of time. In, slight, in slightly less than an hour. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. So anyway, that was a whole thing. Again, continuity editor. Yep. Well, at this point, with 28 books. <laughs> at this point, it's just um, whatever. I, I mean, I had to go back and look and look all this crap up, trying to uh, trying to find that piece of information within notes, um, within note the notes upon notes that I'm sure exist for these books. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, had to be a nightmare. Oh, I'm sure. And there have to be at some point. As she was getting older, I suspect there were several things that may have been pointed out to her by a continuity error uh, catcher. Uh, and she just finally said, look, I'm old. I don't care. That's very true. I, considering the age and how long she's been writing these books, a lot of these errors feel more like it's like, I just don't care to go back and correct it. Mm. It's like, OK, what? Can I understand that. Can I um, understand and respect that. Anyway, with that being said, Quill has a, an idea to introduce Moose County to Oscar Wilde, Wilde's satirical style by publishing the program notes, not in the program, but as his Quill pen columns for the week mm. before the show opens. It's honestly brilliant. Carol and Larry are, of course, completely on board. And this is a great way to draw in an audience that might not have otherwise been coming mm. because Oscar Wilde, importance of being earnest. What am I getting into? No, no, no. Quill's got you. Quill's going to get you <laughs> set up and ready for this show. I mean, witty, witty wordplay and sexual tension. I Indeed. don't know what's going on. But- <laughs> so after this lovely meeting, uh, he visits the site of the new bookstore and talks to Polly, who's exhausted after she, because right now she's working mornings at the library, followed by seven to eight hours at the bookstore. Jeez. Um, so when Quill is there and asks if anything, there's anything he can do, she asks him to go pick up Dundee, who is, as we've mentioned before, mm-hmm. the bookstore cat from Lockmaster. Um, it was mentioned in the previous book that Kit McDermott and Quill meet at a restaurant in Lockmaster, um, but this restaurant is in a Victorian house near the main thoroughfare. It now has a name, and the name is Inglehart's. This means that it's the restaurant that Bushy's ex started after their divorce. Oh, wow. Um, I guess restauranting was easier than trying to make a living catering hunt breakfasts year-round, as she said her original goal was. Um, <laughs> but if you've got that giant house, why not use it? Sure. Um, well, so Quill goes to Lockmaster. He has lunch at Inglehart's with Kip. And then he drives to Kip and Moira's farmhouse to pick up Dumdee and learns about rose watching. When you buy a rose and watch it bloom. It's a form of meditation in these days of bombing and snipers. And so says Moira McDermott and uh, and Kip. Um, because they also mentioned rose watching at the restaurant. And when I was originally writing through this, I'm like, can I just skip that? But no, it's been mentioned three times now. I kind of have to mention it. It's going to be important. Summary. It becomes less of an issue. But you never know as I'm going through. I never know at these 
Well, as I'm going through these, what's really going to be important? So, and in the late stage of the stories, too. Yes. So at this point, when something's been mentioned three times, it's like, okay, I'm taking the cue. I'm moving on. Mm-hmm. All right. Anyway, so Quill picks up young Dundee, the cat, who has a favorite toy, a toothbrush that he proudly takes into his carrier for his ride to his new home. And then we learn that Alden Wade is a widower whose hmm. wife was a, was an older, very wealthy woman. And the mother of uh, the McDermott's daughter's former boyfriend whose name is Wesley. But this uh, this woman, Alden Wade's wife, was the victim of a sniper attack. Oh. She was out riding on her horse and was shot and killed by a hidden gunman. Jeez. The case was never solved. Um, according to uh, the McDermott's daughter, whose name is Katie, there was also a very nasty scene at the funeral home after the death, leading, to, leading said boyfriend, Wesley, to storm out. So at this point, it's kind of no wonder Alden moved to Moose County. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind Just, of. Yeah, get out of that. Um, with Dundee's arrival, though, the bookstore is finally ready to open under the name of dun da da dun what was predicted by every single character in the previous <laughs> book, the Pirate's Chest. <laughs> Downstairs will be the Eddington Smith Place, uh, uh-huh. otherwise abbreviated as ESP, featuring used books managed by Lisa Compton, where Quill intends to be the very first customer. Meanwhile, Quill and the cats get a visit from Bart, who is for some reason in this book being referred to as Uncle George for the very first time. Um, because many moons ago, back in the Cat Who Tailed the Thief, WPKX apparently accidentally called George um, uh, George Bart, um, uh, Hasselrich Bennett, Barter, that's his name. Um, I had to go through the whole name. Um, George <laughs> Barter, George Breeze, who, as we mentioned in that same book, was the illiterate character who's probably doing something illegal, but it really hasn't been caught yet. Um, so... He goes by Bart or G. Allen Barter to avoid confusion. And now Lillian Jackson Brown is claiming that he's known to locals as Allen. And apparently only Quill calls him Bart. Um, well, some of my typing was a little off there. But anyway, um, <laughs> names aside, they discuss the possibility of renaming the K Theater, something to go along with the new bookstore. And then Quill proposes a real center for the arts with classes that could be taught by people like Alden Wade. Oh, Perfect. Sure. What's his qualifications? Uh, We never actually find out. Um, I did importance of being earnest, and I played Jack twice. And I manage manage events for a bookstore. There you go. You're hired on the spot. (laughs) Um, So Quill attends opening night of Ernest uh, alone, because it's the same night as Polly's farewell at the library. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Behind him are two whispering gossipers, very excited to see the man whose wife got shot. Until another patron <laughs> booms at them to shut up. And they finally do. And don't return after intermission. Yay! Uh, wish that would happen more often. I have to agree. Unsurprisingly, that voice was Ernie Kempel. We love him. Um, <laughs> the next day, Quill interviews Lisa about the Eddington Smith Place and learns about their board of directors featuring some old favorites. Burgess Campbell, uh, Dr. Abernathy, Maggie Sprinkle, and a new face, Violet Hibbard, who talked back east before inheriting a locally famous house. It's a wooden mansion that has survived storms, fire, and lightning, and has now been turned into a high-class guest house. Violet, of course, is dying to meet Quill, and Lisa arranges the interruptions. Of course, of course. Because Quill has such a has such a great rapport with the uh, octogenarian set. Um, <laughs> anyway, back at the barn, Joe Bunker slash Weatherby Good no, stops yes, Weatherby. by with the latest Indian village gossip. Alden Wade is rumored to have purchased what used to be Kurt Nightingale's condo, um, and... Joe reports that Alden also has a reputation as a lady killer. In, oh, my. In both cases, that's actually reported to be true since Kurt was, you know, 
Well, yes, there is the whole, <laughs> there's a the lady, there's a lady killing and then the lady killing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, he does both. Um, anyway. Um, so Quill wonders why Polly didn't happen to mention this because she has to be the one who recommended the unit to her new coworker. Because, of course, she lives there and would know that it was open. Right. Um, as, uh, with that information, he then decides to move back to the village early this year. Shocked. Shock <laughs> and awe. He calls Polly to let her know, but of course she's not home because it turns out she took the staff of the pirate's chest to see the show without him. Oh, my. Um, although she praised his column for stimulating their interest. <laughs> Polly is rather evasive about the renting of the condo and Quill is cranky, so he skips his daily banana for a large dish of ice cream. Hey, you know, sure. sometimes you need to have a bit of ice cream. Absolutely. So the next day, he gets an invitation from Mildred Riker to help clean out their summer fridge before the Rikers also move back to Indian Village. Lisa Compton joins them as well, and Quill presents her with a limerick for her husband that has her screaming with laughter, and she promises to have it framed for his office. And it, with good reason. It's very cute. And it is? It is. A school superintendent named Lyle runs the Moose County system with style. He teaches teachers to teach, and he makes a good speech, but his disposition is vile. <laughs> I'm just hearing Carl Castle in my head. <laughs> this right now. <laughs> Highest praise I can think of. Dinner that night, of course, just involves a discussion of the play. It's mentioned that it might runs for th run for three weekends, a local record, which, once again, <laughs> wrong. <laughs> because we know that Henry VIII ran at least that long, but that was because it was under the guise of old horse face, former Hillary Van Brook. Um, so I can understand why that might be forgotten and still considered a record, too, sure. um, because the first time that something not run by Hillary would have run that long. Sure. <clears throat> And, fr and frankly, especially with all of the the Lockmaster connections, it's starting to feel like that. Like the cat who knew a cardinal is the book that's just been totally forgotten about. And that was like the first one that brought. That was like one of the first like breakthrough books mm -hmm. of Absolutely. the entire series. So interesting that that's the one that it all kind of circles back to. Yeah, and they're just not referencing it. Interesting. Um, but there's an interesting bit of gossip that comes up at dinner: is that Alden Way did not take the condo in Indian Village. Instead, hmm. he's going to continue staying at the Hibbard guest house, where he seems to be developing a good rapport with Violet Hibbard, who is the last remaining descendant of a prominent Moose County family, a la Lynette Duncan, hmm. who's also said to be fabulously wealthy, also a la Lynette Duncan. Um, Violet has donated several books to the Eddington Smith Place, which turned out to be rare and valuable, valued up to $5,000. And it also turns out that Alden is sharing the Lockmaster idea of Rose watching with pickaxe. He has gifted Lisa, Polly, and Violet all with roses to watch. Good neighborliness, or is, does he have other goals in mind? Lisa thinks it's because he's lonely. Oh, uh, there's probably she, something else at play. I just think a little you're bit. Gonna find out here. Um, We've read enough of these. We know what's yes. going on. Um, Quill indulges in a bit of rumor spreading himself because he met, he was to convince Susan Exbridge to donate an antique jelly cupboard that belonged to Iris Cobb. Uh, jelly. Yes. <laughs> They're, they're a thing. You, no, I, I'll, have I, some, I, I, I'll have some posts up on the blog because they're actually very pretty. I, um, no, I, everything related to jelly and jams is one thing that my grandmother on my dad's side did, don't wanna, not, not religiously, but she very much was about homemade jam, homemade jelly. So fair enough. I'm just, I have a very distinct picture in my head of what this is. All right. So basically the Eddington Smith Place um, board of Directors is trying to figure out how to get Susan to donate this. So Quill starts spreading rumors that she already has. Um, and he enlists Polly, who Polly still believes that Susan has never read a book in her life and never <laughs> get, and and knows that she never gives anything away. Uh, but Polly, of course, immediately calls to confirm her sources, um, strengthening the rumor. But the day doesn't end all that well. 
Um, although the the cabinet does get donated to um, to ESP at eight fifteen, Coco sounds his death howl. Uh oh! And WPKX later reports a fatal car accident. The victim turns out to be the second actor from Lockmaster, whose name is Ronnie, who played Algernon. So much for that record number of weekends. Carol decides to cancel all remaining performances and refund the ticket money. Ugh. This feels odd to me, but again, if that this was a part that they couldn't cast locally, um, once he's gone, then they're kind of screwed. Mm. later quill grumps to polly um grumps about polly not inviting him to dinner weekly since she started at the bookstore um although he still does her grocery shopping um she's at dinner with her staff and dwight summers who is of course doing the store's publicity so quill's at home alone fielding a strange wrong number asking for ralph um and chasing the cats who have stolen the peel of his latest banana Hmm. Brody then drops by for a drink and some cheese and to reveal that the dead actor had drugs in his system. Ooh. And the mustache starts a tingling. <laughs> uh, the next day, Alden Wade calls uh, calls Quill on Polly's recommendation about the new lit club that they're starting, um, a la one in Lockmaster. Um, he's very smart. They're asking Quill to be their first speaker, talking about Eddington Smith. Alden hmm. expresses polite appreciation for Polly, but nothing effusive. Instead, he gushes about Violet Hibbard and her guest house and her dog, which is a Bracco Italiano, which looks like a cross between a Basset Hound and a German Shorthair Pointer. <laughs> Again, more pictures to come on the blog. Apparently, they're great hunting dogs. Hmm. The cats, by the way, are very scarce during Alden's visit. Quill thinks that uh, all that dog love means that the cats are not fans, but then he remembers that the cats adore Culvert McBee um, from The Cat Who Sang for the Birds who runs a home for old and unwanted dogs in the spirit of the late Maud Coggins. So, um, and Quill, they mentioned that Quill even maintains a quote-unquote cocoa fund to help cover vet expenses for uh, for the McBee's dogs. So, not the dogs. Something else is causing the cats to say, we do not trust this person. Interesting. Now, we have, have, have not had much from the, the cats in general no. this entire book, it seems like, besides the death howl. And the stealing of a banana peel. Yes, but even then, that's, that's not a lot it's compared minimal. to uh, previous ones. Well, and again, this is this is getting to the point where, you know, Coco's getting old. Coco, <laughs> aren't we all? It's true. Um, all right, so we've got there. Later, Dwight Somer stops by to give Quill the rundown on the official opening of the bookstore, culminating in the reveal of a mystery statue in the new Winston Park, which was, of course, named for Eddington Smith's cat, Winston, who miraculously escaped the explosion of Ed's original store and is currently living in high style on Pleasant Street. They're bringing up media from down below, playing up all their stereotypes. Um, their li <laughs> the limos for the uh, press will be from the funeral home. They will have uh, their beloved Amanda, the Scarecrow Grumpy Mayor, Chamber of Commerce President, weighing 300 pounds, followed by a lunch catered at by Lois's luncheonette. Should be an interesting day. Anyway. Yeah, very much so. Quill later chats with Polly, and we learn that she is only now realizing someone has to buy litter, food, police the commode of a cat that lives in a store. So she's designating one of the green smocks, a.k.a. the bookstore staff. Uh, I just want to say this kind of makes me feel bad about poor Brutus and Cata, who we don't hear much about. Um, we hear a lot about Dundee, but not much about but poor Brutus other, and Cata. But the other ones are neglected. Not yes. in there. Mm -hmm. um, then Quill decides to get nosy about Violet Hibbard and her family, and he consults, of course, Thornton Haggis. Ah, yes. Um, the Hibbards are a fourth-generation pioneer family. The house is totally unique, being the only example of wooden 1900-era architecture. So Quill arranges a meeting with Violet and mentions to Bart that the K-Fund should photograph the house and publish a book before the house burns down. Are you having a premonition, Quill? Hmm. He might just be. 
Violet is, of course, delighted by the idea, and she and Quill have a nice rapport, and as he always does with older women. <laughs> nice discussion about theater, too, and Quill openly discusses his father, which surprises me because, you know, let's remember, he He's, burned yeah. the correspondence from his between his mother and Fanny about that. <laughs> Bookstore opens with great fanfare, the mystery statue is revealed, and of course, it's Winston the cat. Uh, <laughs> why else would you name the park Winston Park? Exactly. Just let this... Anyway. Um, whether it be good... A whole lot of build-up for just meh. For meh. That's... <laughs> Starting to describe a lot of this. Um, <laughs> Joe Bunker slash Weatherby Good stops by the barn for a drink to rant about the reported death because Ronnie is originally from Horseradish, Joe's hometown, as is Alden Wade, who we learned changed his name to Alden from George. And the mm. girls have been swooning ever since, so Joe says. <laughs> Joe is absolutely furious at the report that Ronnie had drugs and alcohol in his system because he's a longtime health nut who didn't d- drink anything stronger than beer. At this point, Coco is still uh, stealing banana peels, and the redoubtable Mrs. Fulgrove uh, finds one in Quill's shoes, so she leaves them to air overnight <laughs> oh, in the shed. Geez. So banana peels everywhere. Um, and then we've got this guy who, who you know, is found with drugs and alcohol in the system, but he didn't really drink, and he certainly didn't do drugs. So something's afoot. Indeed it is. Mm. Uh, after this, Quill heads to the bookstore to take Violet Hibbert to dinner, to the confusion of everyone and the expected jealousy of Polly. Uh-oh. Um, dinner is lovely. They talk about her family history, um, uh, her own history. She taught in Italy, nearly married, but her father called her home because her mother was dying. She never went back, which is why she has an esoteric Italian hunting dog named Tazo after uh, Byron's <laughs> epic. And then he asks about the famous Hibbert house, which has been called unique, but never attractive. And of course, Quill has never seen it at this point. Somehow he's managed to live in Moose County for... We've got to be pushing 10 to 12 years at this point. And it's not exactly a large metropolis. No, no. You should have seen this. So... Yes. Um, the house is hideous, um, as <laughs> evidenced by the photo that Violet carries in her purse of her house. Um, but it's all made of wood, over 100 years old. And again, as they've said, miraculously survived fire, lightning, personal accidents. No, no small feat. And after dinner, Quill does take Violet home, confirms that Hibbert House is a monstrosity, <laughs> making him wonder why he would agree to write a book about the place. Answer, you thought it would be good publicity for the K-Fund. And Violet gives him a trunk full of documents which go back to 1925, so he's got his work cut out for him. <laughs> then Quill gets a call from Moira, asking if her daughter Katie can visit Dundee at the bookstore while she's in town for the we- for a wedding uh, at some point. Easy enough to do. Quill has a key to the bookstore because he's the god. The bookstore's godfather, as Polly calls him. Um, so he gets a key also because it's pointed out he lives closer than almost any of the other employees, except those that live in the apartments across the street. <laughs> Go figure. But hey, you know. It, it looks good. Um, but first, it is official opening day at the bookstore. It's a madhouse. Polly doesn't seem to share the excitement. She's all business when Quill stops by to check on her early in the morning. So he goes home to the cats. Will decides to farm out the research on Hibbert House to a new copy facilitator at the something whose name is Kenneth. Apparently, he lives in those uh, in those uh, apartments I just mentioned next to the green smock, quote unquote, responsible for Dundee at the, at the bookstore. And he's been running Polly's for errand, errands for Polly in his spare time. Sorry about that. Um, so inside source for the bookstore to keep checking, to keep tabs on Polly. So nice work, Will. That's all right. Again, again this relationship is all kinds uh, of all kinds of unhealthy. all kinds are just like, yeah. So this new, uh, so Kenneth is known as Whiskers at the something because he is considerably older than the average um, copy facilitator. Um, he and Quill meet at Onusha's. They have a lovely dinner. And Kenneth is a little cagey about his own history, but appears to have grown up on a farm somewhere in the area. He's eager to jump into the Hibbert project. Quill gives him some decent instructions about how to catalog and sort the information he'll be working with. And I'm starting to wonder as I'm reading this information is maybe he really should have taught journalism. 
um, because <laughs> he's giving him solid advice. It's nice. Um, after this, then Quo goes home. He calls Fran Brody to Yum Yum's annoyance to ask about photographing Hibbert House's dark and overfurnished interior. Or maybe it's just to get more dirt on Alden Wade, who Fran describes as talented and sexy. I'm guessing the college president is in the rear view now. <laughs> Sorry, parents. <laughs> wow. Yep. And then we find out why Kenneth is so cagey about his past. After visiting Dundee at the bookstore, Quill takes um, Moira and Katie out for ice cream. And Katie looks across the ice cream parlor and says, huh, that that guy looks familiar. And Quill says, oh, that's Kenneth. He works at the something. And she's like, no, no, that's my old boyfriend, Wesley, who ha- who ha- apparently has a new beard and a haircut. Oh. And he's sitting there having ice cream with his neighbor, Peggy, who's Dundee's valet, as Quill calls her. And it's noted that Peggy is paying for the ice cream. This also means that Kenneth, um, in- that Kenneth, who is lying about who he is, means that Kenneth is Wesley and Alden Wade's stepson. Whoa. So this is a really interesting twist. That is a twist, um, yeah. So in preparation for his talk on Eddington Smith of the Literary Club, Quill asks, quote-unquote, Kenneth to pull some file photos of him uh, for him, of Eddington, the shop, and, of course, Winston, the cat. And then Innesy instantly asked about his ice cream date with Peggy. And then Ke- Kenneth mentions that Peggy cuts his hair. And Quill wonders who cuts Peggy's hair, since apparently her bangs nearly cover her eyes. Is she who, he claimed, she, who she claims to be, too? Or is this, double act, uh, is this a double act with nefarious purposes? <laughs> we shall see. Oh, um, this is... <laughs> this this took a turn. It did. This took a, this is this is this is like it's exciting. Yes, it's a good turn. This is we haven't seen this in a bit. I know. Next up, Bushy stops by with his new wife Janice. Yay! Um, <laughs> to talk about photographing the Hibbert House. Bushy, of course, being a consummate professional, has this all under control. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Bushy also mentions Alden Wade's reputation as a homewrecker before he and Janice head home to feed their new kittens. Um, who he refers to as criminals in training. Which is why they name nickname why they name them Bonnie and Clyde. Jeez. <laughs> um, I will say this: it is so refreshing to have a male homewrecker. I, I mean, so often yeah, yeah, yeah. we have you know the young sexy woman wandering around and you know marrying for money, but with the you know if you think about the fact that Alden Wade is actually the second we've had mm-hmm. um, after um, oh gosh the guy in uh, the cat who tailed a thief with the three initials Carter Lee Carter Lee yes. Yes. Anyway, so Carter Lee is our previous uh, male homework, homewrecker, which he's less of a homewrecker and more of a scam artist. So this is apparently full on homewrecker, you know, insinuates themselves into the into the family, mm-hmm. um, marries, marries wealthy widows. Uh, and then, you know, they they die or divorce. It's gone with their entire, with their entire and, money, and all their money, the and then exactly. just leaves. Yeah. Pardon me. OK. So anyway, now that we've solved the Carter Lee James thing, that's his name. Um, we move on. So we have our, we have our male homewrecker. Um, and so the next day after, after all of this big revelation, uh, revelation from Bushy, Quill goes to buy the very first book from the Eddington Smith place, a first edition of The Cat in the Hat. Um, he bought it for Coco to sit on. And Lisa Compton mentions uh, that in thanks for writing the book about Hibbert House, um, Violet Hibbert is going to be gifting Quill with some of her father slash grandfather's rare book collection on journalism. Um, Quill tells them that she really should donate them to ESP and then he'll buy them so that she gets a tax break, um, which is very clever. Um, Violet wanted to thank him in person, but she went to Lockmaster for an annual doctor's appointment with Alden Wade as her driver. 
um, Alden Wade will then, of course, deliver the books. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting relationship that's developing there. Yes, I must after say. Dropping, so after dropping the cat in the hat and any other purchases off at the barn, he walks back downtown, runs into our darling Maggie Sprinkle. Uh-huh. We get an update on her cats, of course. Uh, Charlotte, her deaf white cat, passed away and has been replaced by a lovely gray cat named Emily. Uh-huh. And Quill asks to speak with her about Hibbert House and her memories, because apparently Maggie and Violet grew up together, and it turns out the man Violet was going to marry was an artist and a foreigner. Italian, I'm guessing. Um, I hope. Who knows with uh, this? Apparently, but that's, that, that's apparently why her father called her home from Italy, not her mother's death. Ah. Uh, and Violet refused to marry since then as a peevish way of saying, I'm not continuing the family line if you're going to drag me back like this. Um, in case she has any other stories to add, Quill then leaves his tape recorder with Maggie for the week. <laughs> Alden Wade delivers the book, tests out the barn acoustics with some Henry V and some operetta. And on the way back down the ramp, Coco trips him with a moldy banana peel. Uh-oh. Causing Quill to, poco- to compose a Seuss-esque verse. He does not like thee, Mr. Wade. No explanation has been made. I only know the status quo. He does not like thee, Mr. Wade. Not the best. <laughs> not his best. Not his best work, but it is. But, you know, if you're under but pressure it's and everything, who knows? So anyway, after that little interlude, Cool <laughs> stops by Janice and Bushy's house, which again was formerly uh, Thelma Thackeray's house, to pick up some of the photos and ask about ask more about pho- photographing Hibbert House with this dark interiors. He is more concerned about these dark interiors than he's been about anything. And usually he just says... I leave this to the professionals. Um, but this time he actually has an opinion. Well, he just, he wants to make sure it's done right. Apparently. <laughs> um, apparently, while they were photographing, Janice had quite the chat with Violet, who revealed that, much like Janice, she's a newlywed herself. Really? Violet refuses to tell Janice who her new husband is, only that it's going to be announced in the something later this week. Hmm. Quill's kind of wondering if it might be her Italian artist, maybe one of her residents, uh, a gentleman named Judd Amherst, who's about Violet's age, seems a likely candidate. Um, and later, after that lovely news, Chief Brody stops by with news that he terms weird, which is not a term that Brody uses. It turns out that someone has made off with the $5,000 uh, book that was donated to the ESP, which was Death in the Afternoon, Hemingway. The theft was reported by Alden Wade, and at that, Coco sits on his cat in the hat. Huh. Hmm. <laughs> in the morning, Kenneth calls to report the book stolen um, and uh, to Quill and asks to stop by later with Peggy, who's dying to meet Coco and Yum Yum. Coco has been pushing off an old book, Fables and Slang, by a George Aid, which comes from Violet's collection. <laughs> and let's please remember that Alden's first name was originally George before he changed it. So uh-huh. obviously he's up to something, but Coco hasn't gotten this through to Quill yet. He, good Coco's working on it, though. Coco he's working is, on it. I mean, he really got a got a gift with that one. Um, Coco, uh, excuse me, Quill then calls Thornton. Coco has not yet managed to learn how to use the phone. Quill calls Thornton to ask if his family ever did gravestones for the Hibberts, and of course they did them all. Hmm. Usually elaborate and expensive, except for a daughter who died in disgrace. Mm, interesting family hmm. history there. Um, they're all in the Hibbert property in a private cemetery uh, that Violet is a little cagey about. And then later, Joe Bunker stops by to, uh, conf- to report more Indian village gossip because he was wrong about Alden Wade buying the condo, but now he knows who really bought it. Their new veterinarian, whose name is Dr. Constance. She's been living at Hibbert House, where she can't have pets, so now she'll move into a condo with five of her patients in the same building. Jeez. You've got Coco, you've got Yum Yum, you've got Brutus, you've got Kata, and of course Joe's cat, Jetstream. 
Uh, and then she will eventually get her own uh, cat. So she maybe can do house calls. Who there knows? There you go. <laughs> um, as Joe is leaving, Kenneth and Peggy show up. Um, Joe has to leave to give bad weather news because there's a major storm approaching. And we learn that Peggy is from Las Vegas and moved to pickaxe after a terrible divorce that left her with a bad scar on her forehead, which is why she wears her bangs so long. The cats love her. They met, they're meh on Kenneth slash Wesley. When Quill pr- pushes for what brought Kenneth to pickaxe, he hesitates before saying, I've got a suspect under surveillance. So Ooh. now he is an undercover cop. Okay. Quill thinks he's just pretending, much like he asked Celia, he asked Celia <laughs> to do when she first moves to town. So only time will tell on that one. Then Quill has a brief musing on his disappointment that Violet is now married. He'd apparently been considering her as Polly's successor since Polly has completely ignored him since the bookstore opened. Oh, Although he apparently still does her grocery shopping. So nice, I this, guess. Eh, wow. Yeah. God. Um, he then gets a call from Moira, who mentions something gossipy that she needs to discuss with him. And they arrange to meet under the guise of him interviewing her about raising marmalade cats for the quill pen. <laughs> but first, the literary club meeting. It's a really lovely tri- tribute to Eddington Smith and his years of selling books. And afterwards, Polly invites herself over for music and they make plans for dinner later in the week. And all seems to be back to normal with that dysfunctional relationship. <laughs> then, of course, then Quill heads back down to Lockspa- Lockmaster to meet with Moira, who tells him that Wesley, a.k.a. Kenneth, was apparently so angry about his mother's remarriage after his father's death that he never showed up for his first day of college. Because he and Katie had enrolled in journalism school together. Why these kids are all going to journalism school, I don't know. Who knows? Anyway, um, and he after he didn't show up for the first day of college, he just disappeared until she saw him in the ice cream store as Kenneth. Katie didn't even know he was even alive. Huh. Um, apparently, Kit made some discreet bank investigations, found out that Wesley is still making withdrawals from his trust fund, so someone claiming to be him is alive, And but that's all they knew. And has access to his account. Mm-hmm. Moira then reveals that Wesley's father killed himself after losing money in the stock market and after he found his wife out, his wife was cheating on him. With the man she married shortly after his death, a.k.a. Alden Wade. Huh. Homewrecker. Quill confirms that he's having Kenneth do some research for him and promises to do some discreet inquiries to ease Katie's mind. The next morning, Quill gets a call from Janice. The announcement in the paper is con- is there, and it's confirming that Violet Hibbert has married Alden Wade, Ooh. our black widower. <laughs> Bushy and Janice all agree that he's completely wrong for Violet, and later Polly shares what Dr. Constance told her, that since Alden moved into Hibbert House, it's been a completely formal atmosphere compared to the relaxed, welcoming feeling that she had before, which is why she's relieved to move to the condo without all that stress. Dr. Constance, by the way, is recovering from a divorce of her own. Um, All that aside, it appears that the K Theater is going to reopen as Theater Arts, with the R-E spelling, um, with (laughs) classes under the direction of Alden Wade. Of course. Mm. That might be a terrible idea, and Quill gets more than he bargained for with his discreet inquiries. And learns that Kenneth is indeed Wesley, and he's come looking for proof that his stepfather killed his mother after attending a police academy out west, quote-unquote. A conversation with Maggie Sprinkle then reveals more suspicions that Alden Wade isn't the fine, upstanding young man that he wants people to believe he is. Not that young, but... Anyway, Maggie is very concerned, especially since Violet is now avoiding her oldest friend. <laughs> um, and has recently changed her will. Oh, so with that's, his mustache, that's always suspect. That's always suspect. So with his mustache twitching at all this new information, <laughs> Quill moves out to Indian Village for the winter, which starts off with a lovely pizza party um, with the neighbors. And afterwards, he gets a call from Kenneth saying he has some info on Quill's research project, and they plan to meet the next day. Bart stops by, however, in the morning, so Quill can inform him about his concerns about Violet's hasty marriage and her iffy health. 
Quill's concern is that two of her current guests run a local realty office and have talked about their dreams of developing the Hibbert property. Um, the big the business, by the way, is Wix Realty, which is a nice but odd callback to the cat who moved a mountain and all, which was full of Wixes, <laughs> including our favorite Vonda Dudley. Oh, yes. Um, and these two realty guys are duck hunting buddies with Alden Wade. So what Quill wants to know is if the property is protected from development in the case of Violet's untimely death. Bart agrees to look into that because it's not a specific fussy um, inquiry and, you know, they're getting around attorney-client privileges by reducing the inquiry to a basic yes or no with no other information about the will's contents. Hmm. It's sketchy, but... A bit. It's understandable when you're looking at something for um, property conservancy rather than development that, you know, that might be good information to have. Sure. So after this, Quill interviews Dr. Constance about her time at Hibbert House, and she confirms what she told Polly. After Alden moved in, Violet let him call the shots and changed a friendly atmosphere to a formal one. The female all tenants all agree that the marriage seems like a terrible idea. Um, she hasn't talked to the male tenants, who apparently do not live in the main house, but in a guest house. And Kenneth's news turned out to be the story from an older gentleman whose mother had been a maid of all work at the Hibbert House a hundred years ago. Hmm. Remember that stone that Thornton Haggis described for a daughter who died in disgrace? Uh-huh. Apparently, said daughter ran away to Milwaukee, married a man who turned out to be abusive, and she came home with a baby. Oh. One day, the baby was stolen from his carriage by mysterious people in a car, and the daughter drowned herself. What? And no one ever tried to find out what happened to the baby. Oh, my God. According to the man's mother, who quit soon after the daughter's death, because that was just way too much to deal with. <laughs> um, then Kenneth has a bit of an outburst, frustrated with the lack of evidence about his stepfather and his mother's unresolved murder, unsolved murder. And Quill feels very embarrassed uh, for all of this, although we all have to look at him and go, you, you prompted this, Quill. Yeah, no, you can't can't blame anybody but yourself on that. Exactly. Jeez. It's a lot. Uh, The next day, Quill is reading a book on duck hunting, files his column, hears from Bart. We are are relieved to know that Hibbert House is fully protected from development, Mm -hmm. uh, no matter when Violet dies. And we also learn that Pickaxe's 150th anniversary has been postponed. This was a big thing that they were starting to get get prepared for in the last book. Mm -hmm. And it's been postponed because someone miscalculated the dates. Oh, no. Quill, of course, immediately blames Hixie, but I would like to say that there is a whole committee that hired her with the dates already set. So she just went along so with it. So she just went, you know, this is the date of our 150th anniversary. Great, let's do it. You, are, you then, must have done your fact checking. No need for me to do it. I, yeah, I, exactly. I do, yeah, don't blame Hixie. Yeah, not her fault. Jeez. Uh, she didn't plan the date. No. Um, speaking of Hixie, she then delivers another story to Quill from Kenneth, uh, which is on tape. Um, but when Quill goes to call him to say thank you, the number is disconnected. Oh. And Coco, by the way, is still pushing that Fables book by George Aid off the shelf. <laughs> Quill is not getting it. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out that Kenneth has quit the something and has disappeared again, telling Junior he was going back to school. Quill checks with Peggy, who has been out to dinner with Weatherby Good. Why he's dating the youngins, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and got home to find a note asking her to return his rental car and collect his payment from Quill. Hmm. Later that night, Quill gets a hysterical call from Maggie. Violet passed away. But interestingly, there is no death howl from Coco. Hmm. Well, he's never howled for a natural cause of death, has yes. he? Um, and that's my only there is, you know, that's the only thing it can be. Alden then calls Quill asking to come and share a conversation he had with Violet shortly before she passed away. Coco is not amused. That's a fairly boring conversation about a games room, about the games room at Hibbert House, which apparently Violet would like a description of the book Quill's working on, really. Boring conversation, anyway. 
Anyway, Joe stops by after his late afternoon broadcast and they discuss the current weather, which is going to involve sheet lightning and ahead of some nasty storms, followed by more gossip from Horseradish. Apparently, Alden recommended uppers to Ronnie to help with stage fright, according to Ronnie's fiance, who thinks Alden might have been trying to get rid of Ronnie because the biggest instigators in the rumor that Alden killed his first wife um, or had her killed were his stepson and Ronnie. Mm. Then the storm hits. Coco has a cat fit and ending as a huge strike of lightning shakes the building. Um, Quill hears sirens and notices a glow in the direction of Hibbert House. And in the morning, WPKX reports that the mansion has burned to the ground. Oh, my. An inv- at an invitation from Quill, Judd Amherst, who again was a former, now a former resident, comes over to tell the whole sorry tale. The guest house where the men stayed is still intact, but Tasso the dog was kept in the main house in the kitchen overnight. And Alden apparently freaked out when the house started burning and tried to rescue Tasso, and they both died in the fire. Oh. Judd then went to Alden's room afterwards, discovered the missing $5,000 book from ESP, stamped and cataloged, which is fishy then because Alden was the one who reported it missing. Right. And... That is the end of the book. What? With all of these loose ends. And Coco's, the, the best interpretation I can make of Coco's get, best guess is that Alden went a bit too far in his plans and slipped on the banana peel of fate, leading oh, to his death. God. That is literally how they sum up the end of this book. The curtain falls, but not hard enough. Jeez. No. And all of these crazy things. So we never find out what happened to Wesley. We never find out if Alden ever really killed his there first wife. Ton, yeah, these are a ton of you loose ends. It is assumed that Violet died of natural causes. She had a very severe heart condition. Um, right. That was why she was going for those annual doctor's visits. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that one, it's possible without the death howl that she did not um, was die not actually of murdered, anything suspicious. Foul. It was just, you know, passed away yep. in her sleep or natural. Mm-hmm. A couple of oddball notes. <laughs> just a few oddball notes for this book when it doesn't really lead anywhere. Um, so Quill blames the quote unquote eggheads at the K fund who came up with the idea for Winston park in Moose County. This is a park with no green space, no fountains, no park benches. Instead it has walking paths and statuary and ground cover and is being called a walking and learning park. <laughs> at least the statue is of Winston the cat. So it's not a total downer, but it's not really, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't seem feel like, like a park. park. It's more like an it, open space. It's, it's or an open. Yes, exactly. It's an open space. It's a, um, a you know, it's, it's a greenery, and it's in the middle of downtown. Why would you do that? Um, their their theory with no park benches is because they encourage loitering. Oh, Lord. they're supposed to. That's what park benches That's what parks are, are for. To actually loiter or enjoy or just have a day in the good. Good Lord. Anyway. Um, back to the, uh, the jelly cupboard that Quill ends up collecting from Susan Exbridge after he blackmails her into doing it for public opinion. Um, he asks her about the provenance. She claims that it came from a family on Purple Point, been in the family for years. Quill has a really good laugh about that because he knows for a fact that it came from Iris's apartment in Junktown. <laughs> uh, Kenneth slash Whiskers, who is the new copy boy at something, First runs into Quill because he mentions having a copy of, uh, mentions having a book of Quills that he'd like to sign. Quill is assuming that it's the short and tall tales that he just had published. Mm-hmm. And he is stunned when it's a copy of City of Brotherly Crime. Which his was his very, very first, very first yeah. book. Um, he also then says that this book made him no friends and refers to it as long forgotten and unmourned. But I should say that Junior mentions that it was required reading in journalism school when he was there. So it really can't have been that bad. No, you would think not. So, final now, opinions. Final opinions on this one. Now, what 
There was not a lot of cats in this one. Not it's, a lot there, of cats. There, well, there was not a lot of much. In, there, there, there was the potential for something and for a lot in this, but it just kind of petered out, mm. or it just ended abruptly. It was just okay. Uh, it's like in Dungeons and Dragons when the DM gets lazy and says, uh, "Okay, rocks fall in the dungeon, everyone dies." <laughs> That's kind of what this feels like. It's kind of what it's feeling like. Um, with- and it had so much potential. Oh my gosh, things were getting so interesting. The backup story with Hibbert House, you have the mysterious missing child that right. nobody ever found out. I mean, there's so much that could have been done with this. So I do give this three paws because the potential was so great. Yeah, I can see that. It would have been amazing if she'd stuck the landing. But I just hate an unsolved crime in a mystery novel. It drives me absolutely crazy. Because well, then it's, yeah, it's not a mystery. It's a, you need I Robert mean, Stack in a smoky there's, background. There's really, there's this very solid buildup. There's all of these clues everywhere. And it just disappears. And it's so disappointing. Also, why the bananas? No good reason. <laughs> I mean, yes, it was funny to have him slip on the bananas. The proverbial um, banana peel of life. But, and there was so much death without really any real payoff. Right. Especially the dog. I'm, I am very sad. I mean, that's, that is, yeah, that's just, that's shock value at this point. Yeah. So we never learn what happened, what happens to the possible mystery child. We never learn what happens to Wesley. Mm. And we never, at, at least not in this book, and I don't know that in any of the others, that we ever learn about what happened to Peggy and why she has a giant scar on her forehead from a divorce. Jeez. Why would you mention it? If, it's if not you're going not going to gonna have a payoff for it, yeah, and it, maybe everything was going to be all told and all told in this in that final book that never came. So. And, and we will. It's up. It's just we in the ether. Know. We will never know. Oh wow! Yeah, that's a shame. It is a shame. That is a shame. Well, on that note, <laughs> on that note, thank you all so much for listening to the cat who did a podcast. Thanks for sticking with us through the end of this crazy adventure that we've been doing. <laughs> Um, and join us next time for the next uh, for the next to last book in this series, which is the cat who dropped a bombshell. Uh, the penultimate book. The penultimate book. I'm Susan Ramsdorf Terry. And I'm Luke Ramsdorf Terry. And until next time, happy sleuthing and stay nosy, my friends. Mm-hmm.